This is Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll. My name is Amy. And I am Chris. And today we have a special guest. But before we introduce our special guest, I wanted to talk about that we are on Instagram and you can find us on Instagram by searching Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll or Love, Recovery, RR. Mm. And we love Instagram. It's a fun way to share pictures and inspirational quotes that Chris always teases me about. But you can link to our I website. I hardly half the time do that. You, you kind of like them, though, because some of them are very mindful-oriented, very positive-oriented on recovery. So check us out on Instagram, Love Recovery RR or Love Recovery and Rock and Roll. So I would like to introduce Reverend Jan Brown from SpiritWorks Foundation. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Now, I got to know Jan by volunteering for a project at work through, I think it's Catch a Fire. And Jan's uh, organization had some needs for some PowerPoint template work. And I was happy to throw my hat into the ring because being so passionate about recovery, I thought, hey, I've got these technical skills. I'll volunteer. I threw my resume in and Jan said, great. So we've been able to talk over the past month or so. And it was so exciting to get to know what Jan is doing with SpiritWorks Foundation, as well as uh, their Ancillary SpiritWorks Institute and the courses that they offer through that. But beyond Jan's great work with substance abuse recovery, she also has her own story about recovery. And I was just so impressed. And I said, hey, Jan, would you come be on our show? I'd love you just to talk about what you're doing and tell us about yourself and your story of recovery. Sure. So I am a woman with addiction in long-term recovery. And for me, that means that I have not used drugs or alcohol for the past 32 years. Nice. Um, and recovery has given me a life, um, I'd say, beyond my wildest dreams, Um I'm an ordained deacon in the Episcopal Church. Um, I founded SpiritWorks Foundation in 2005, and it continues to almost take on a life of its own. Um, so it keeps me very busy, and and it's really wonderful work. I also do a lot of work uh, nationally, somewhat internationally as well. Um, I think one of the highlights of my summer has been doing a summer camp for children who are growing up. Um, in households with heroin addiction or opioid addiction. And so that was that was a pretty amazing experience that happened a couple weeks ago. And congratulations on 32 years. That is just an amazing feat. And uh, I really appreciate what you've done with your recovery. It's very inspirational to someone like me in the infancy of their recovery. Thank you. You know, the last time we spoke on the phone, you were doing that camp for children and you were sharing some of the stories about the heartbreak, but also the camaraderie and recovery. And could you tell us more about how this camp is structured and some of the unique issues that children of heroin parents face? Sure. So I think for me, the the good news about doing this camp was that I got to do the piece that I'm really good at 
which was running the small group program for the children in which we spent about an hour and a half to two hours every day um, just kind of talking through uh, the the curriculum that we used, um, which is from the children's program kit that was developed by the National Association of Children of Addiction and the Substance Abuse what is it called? Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. And um, the the camp itself is, is an Episcopal camp and conference center. And so the piece that they're really good at is, is running camps. And so the kids, when they weren't with me in small group, got to, to do the fun things that, that children would do at any camp, which... I was really grateful for um, because more than anything, I really wanted the kids to be able to come away uh, for for a week and play and to be with other children who could really understand their their lived experiences. I'd say there there were two there were several highlights. Um, the children there were between uh, the youngest we took was nine years old, and the others were scattered between fourth and eighth grade. SpiritWorks has done this camp. For four years, uh, about it's been several years now since our, our last cycle of camp, and you know, two two of the stories that still resonate with me. Uh, one was we asked the children, "What what if you were to come home from school and your mom was laying on the couch? What would your response be?" And um, ten years ago, the response was we would get her a blanket and cover her up and and go and get our snacks from from the kitchen and then be really quiet while we did our homework. And this time when the question uh, was asked, the response was we would come in the house and we would check to see if she was dead, um, see if she was still breathing. And and that caused me, uh, I mean, that happened on Sunday evening when we were just getting to know one another. So it was quite a, a surprising response. Um, later in the week, we were doing a, a checklist, so to speak, of kind of true and false, whether or not these things have happened to you in your family. And again, how would you respond? And I think the question was something to the effect of um, true or false, you would be embarrassed if to invite your friends over to your house. And this one little boy said that uh, it was true that he would be embarrassed. And when asked how come, you know, you know, he said that because his mother and father, his mother, excuse me, might have needles in the house. And again, 10 years ago, we would have heard something more along the lines of, you know, I'd be embarrassed because they might be drunk. And so it just really raised the intensity level in terms of what these children are dealing with these days, uh, given the, the types of drugs that were that are in in the households, um, one of the other pieces that I came away with was um, I kept trying to decide as as I was with them whether or not to train them on how to use Narcan, the overdose reversal drug. And, and I really agonized over the young, the youth, um, the young age of the kids, thinking, gosh, how, how could it be that we would need to do that? And so I chose not to. Last week, we held the first ever uh, Virginia recon, we call it, which was a uh, statewide conference for recovery. And 
we had a presenter who was from one of the harm reduction uh, groups here in Virginia. And so I got the opportunity to ask her, you know, was it the right thing? What should I have done? And um, and she said they train children, you know, much younger than that. Um, children who are five, four and five years old are being trained to to know how to use Narcan in in case they need to provide a, a medical response for for a parent or a loved one in their family. So it was um, it was quite the week, and and it continues to to live with me. Um, you know, right now these children loved ones are not necessarily in recovery um but one of the things that stood out to me was you know how resilient they are it really struck me you know the things that they're living with and and how they were able to play and so much laughter uh and fun and ability to make connections and and those kinds of things so it was definitely a successful time uh the children were amazing and, and I'm really grateful that we got to do it and look forward to doing it again. Yeah, that that is a little heartbreaking to hear. But, it, you know, training children to use Narcan, I think one thing that really goes unreported with all of the overdoses that are reported in the country on a daily basis is how many of those overdoses are found by their children. Mm. And, and that just is heartbreaking. And it, I love what you're doing with them i think that's great a question i have is you know having done this now 10 years as these children get older into their late teens early 20s um do you have any kind of information or data on on how many of them end up either in counseling or with with issues of their own whether be it through addiction or just mental health issues based on what you've seen Sure. Oddly enough, so the, the camp started Sunday evening, and um, I guess it was Saturday uh, night, I got a uh, Facebook message from uh, a young boy, now a young man, who was in the first camp that we had ever run. And, um, and it was just really odd, the juxtaposition. However, he uh, was now, is now in rehab. Um, having having gotten into drugs due to a, an injury. And so it was just really wonderful that he knew, based on what he had learned in camp that many years ago, to reach out that it was, you know, it, it's okay. He really understands it as a, a use disorder and, and that he was very uh, likely, sadly, to, to end up with it. Um, and so I felt really good that he was able to reach out, that he was in, is in rehab, and, and that those are the things that he learned from being in camp with us. Probably 75% of the children that we worked with, we have remained connected to, and the majority are doing extremely well, graduating from high school, um, graduating from college, have gone on to a few of them to work in the field of addiction. Uh, and recovery. Some have become school teachers. Uh, so ma- many have indeed had kind of bumps along the way. And yet they know that that it's just a part of their family system. And so the shame and some of the other things that come along with it are not part of their lives, which which has been really wonderful to see. 
I really love the programs that you offer and what you are doing. I mean, when I look at what Spirit Works Foundation does, I think some of the core things are how you deliver peer-to-peer programs for services for children, youth, and adults living in recovery. And I think the power behind your organization is you mentioned we are the people we serve. We believe addiction is a chronic public health crisis affecting individuals, families, and communities. And I love the approach that you have about really it's helping the individual, the family, and the community as well. And then, of course, I think one of the things that really bring a lot of credibility is your message of hope. And I think, you know, we've had conversations about this, but talking about how people in recovery carry a message of hope. And you yourself being in recovery, I think hope has been a core part of of what you strive for and, and what you what you deliver for others. But I'd love to hear, let's go back, you know, more than 30 years ago and talk about your story and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So I was I was introduced to first alcohol um, at a very young age. It, it, my father was a career military officer, and and they did lots of of function of hosted lots of functions, and so it meant there were leftover drinks around. And um, me seeing that other people were were drinking and having fun, it, you know, it was very natural for me than to to try those things Uh, my oldest brother who probably was more in the experimenting age and some of my cousins you know allowed me to to kind of sneak we used to call them ledge drinks because they were sitting somewhere and so that's really where where my drinking began very quickly um, I started using smoking marijuana I think I was in second third grade and, and then in high school and junior high school, I be, was very involved in, in athletics um, and had a couple of injuries and was prescribed prescription painkillers and discovered that my, my brain liked them way too much. From that, very quickly, I started spraining my ankle on purpose and, and doing some other things so that I could get prescribed uh, opioids and and then I was off and running and got an appointment to the United States Military Academy where I had stopped using other drugs I mean so in high school I, I used cocaine I used I would use just about anything that people would tell me might get me high and and so when I went to West Point I knew that that I wouldn't be able to continue using drugs and so alcohol picked up again for me I had the the good fortune to know one of my college professors at West Point uh, discovered that I had some some hidden athletic talent and I I was allowed to train at the Olympic Training Center and that was a a wonderful experience and coming out of that I broke my thumb um, and had a couple more injuries while at the academy and once again of course was prescribed opioids and um, and I think that that was part of my Undoing as a as a having the opportunity to be a career military officer, because once again, my brain liking it as well as it did, recognizing that, you know, not only did it kill physical pain, but it, it also killed emotional and spiritual pain, probably even better. Um, I quickly began, you know, having teeth pulled that didn't need to be pulled, faking injury, 
so that I could I could get more more painkillers and and so I think one of the things that uh, West Point ended up sending me to treatment for the first time, which I now know that back then would have was was novel, um, and and so the fact that they did that for me uh, was 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 amazing. After my my stay in treatment, uh, I I ended up leaving West Point. I, I later learned that I got an honorable discharge for which I am grateful. And and just kind of hung out at my folks' house for a while, and and then decided that I wanted to go back to school. And you know, once again, enter drugs, and I was off and running. And um, you know, two two years down the road, found myself in in treatment again. And I think for me, gratefully, my treatment experience was treated as a was a medical issue, and so I got the best care I, I think that was available at that time. Um, it meant medical detox. It meant, uh, my, my treatment was based on my needs and not some kind of standard. Everybody gets the same thing. You know, certainly the assessments that I had demonstrated what my needs were and, uh, probably because I was young and the level of severity of, of my addiction um, I mean, I ended up being in rehab for about 17 months, which these days is is really unheard of. And so I needed each and every day of that that treatment experience. And I think because of it, you know, I get to be here today and have not taken my recovery for granted and really use and speak out quite a bit on the need for for treating this as the medical condition that it is. I, I firmly believe that, you know, and have always believed even for these past 32 years that if people got the same level of care that I did, that we would have the majority of the people would be in recovery, that it would be the expectation rather than something that we say is, is simply possible. So um, it is it is my great passion to to be able to continue to do the work that I'm doing and again, to be able to speak out, I next week I get to actually on Monday I get to go to the White House and um, share my experience and and really talk about and elevate uh, the the medical care and and that piece of of what needs to be in place for people in order to really get better. That's pretty awesome going to the White House. Uh, can it, I? It'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm bet. Um, but such a need, I mean, especially since this is, you know, a national and worldwide epidemic. I think something interesting is, you know, in 2014, Jan, you were appointed to the governor of Virginia to serve on, on the task force on prescription drug and heroin abuse. And I'm curious, what are some of the 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 things that you've observed in, in Virginia? What's maybe unique, also the same for Virginia and those in addiction? What have you found from that? Sure. I th- we, we made, I mean, it was really interesting because it, I wasn't a token. I mean, they really wanted to hear from me, um, certainly my lived experience, but even my professional experience. So I was really grateful for the privilege of being able to serve. And, and we looked at, I think then it was, it was a lot about um, the kind of prescription uh, monitoring programs uh, making sure that when people were getting prescribed medicine, that people 
you know, doctors knew and pharmacists knew what the folks were taking already so that overprescribing was was something that we were trying to get rid of. And, you know, not only has that been done in Virginia, it is something that has spread throughout the country. Equally, I think it was 2016 in Virginia, one of the recommendations that had come out of our work was that it was declared a public health problem. Uh, and this was before it was it was done by, by our president. And so it meant that things like Narcan could be available without a prescription, that, you know, community members could become trained on how to administer Narcan. It meant that SpiritWorks could apply and become uh, somebody that we are allowed to dispense Narcan. There's two nonprofits here in Virginia, and we're one of them. Um, and so that came out of that work, which was was amazing, so that people can come and we can do trainings. We've been able to work with a couple of the companies that manufacture Narcan and, and get it for free. We were also able to get it at a reduced rate and, and offer it to um, one of our local county uh, police forces so that all of their officers uh, have had Narcan. And so that also kind of came out of that work. Some of the, the less than ideal things that have come out, uh, what my, my big one is that we don't have a full good Samaritan law in Virginia. We have what's called affirmative defense and so it's an area that we still continue to to try to to make a difference for and and really raise the issue so that people stop you know leaving their friends for dead or throwing them out by the side of the road any any number of things put them in the bathtub and leave them there um to die and so we're we're continuing to take baby steps in that way other states many most states i think now have a full uh, full Good Samaritan law. Um, like I said, Virginia started back then with the, the affirmative defense, which essentially means uh, that we'll take into consideration that you called the police. However, that happens after, you know, we, we arrest you and you cooperate. Now we've got something called Dillon's Law that gets us a little bit closer to where we want to be which means that um, you don't necessarily have to cooperate and we, we still have the option to, to arrest you. And um, oddly, gosh, it's been a bit over a week ago, we, we had one of our parents in our parents' group got to live that. So her, her daughter overdosed. I think the gentleman ended up calling 911. It was too late. He had no Narcan. And so she ended up dying. And and now as a result, I mean, he did the right thing, which was to call, but he didn't quite tell the truth because he was so afraid that he was going to be arrested. And so it's been it's been really tricky to to work with the family. Um, just earlier today before the call, uh, I did her funeral. And so it's 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 very much real and fresh, the, the work that we're getting to do and and, you know, one of the things that we're hopeful for is that the, the public emergency is supposed to expire, I think, in 2020. And so I think we have enough reason to believe because the number of deaths in Virginia, though it went down last year, 
in this year, in the first quarter of this year, has already gone up. And so at the rate we're going, we will have more more deaths this year than than ever in Virginia, unless unless somehow we we get a hold and, and are able to to put this in the other direction to really turn the tide. Do you have any kind of comparison with states that do have the Good Samaritan law versus your state as far as how many Narcan has saved based on a Good Samaritan state versus what you guys have implemented right now? Most states um, had a more significant uh, downturn than than um, we did in Virginia. We had a, a slight downturn last year. However, this year, and, and I think in large part, it's, it's certainly because, you know, the Virginia is part of the one of the places where a lot of the drugs come in um, because of our ports. And so that certainly contributes to it. But those those states are really doing a better job. And I'm confident that it is it is in large part because because of their full good Samaritan law. And we're going to go back and, and we're going to try again. I mean, I certainly understand the need to arrest the bad guy. However, I mean, just far too many. I worked with a mom probably about a year ago whose son was thrown by the side of the road and left for dead and wasn't dead. And so had he not been thrown by the side of the road, he, he too would have had at least the opportunity for recovery. Well, I really hope that we can get that uh, Good Samaritan law in place on a national basis because there is such a need for for assistance and for recovery. And there's so many tragic stories because of these situations and, and examples that you, you've explained. With your experience, what do you think are the best next steps and, and what keeps people in recovery? And what do you find to be the most effective solutions for recovery? I find that the the most effective solutions are, are community and staying connected. And, and then being able to, to really think beyond abstinence um, or even moderation-based. I mean, that thinking beyond the foundation of, of, of using or not using and that whole range of what that might mean to people and, and really look at the bigger picture, you know, the social determinants of health, for example. I mean, people with addictions and still die sooner than than the large population and they're dying from from preventable deaths um you know so we need to look at all of our entire you know health issues and not simply whether somebody uses or not um equally we need folks to to be able to further their education um and and then get some vocational skills so that they can be you know regular members of society uh, I think the other piece, as it gets addressed more, is is kind of co-treating, if you will, and certainly going forward, paying attention to the need that people have to, to recover and heal from their trauma. Uh, it seems about 100 percent, I think, now that trauma and, and uh, addiction kind of are, are treated at the same time because of the the level that that they both appear together and and really you can't you can't treat one without the other because removing somebody's drug drugs which are often 
being used uh, as self-medication, um, you know, then leaves them wide open and, and with no ability to manage their trauma. And so by teaching them skills, safe coping skills, they're able to manage. And so, I mean, and, and then have really meaningful and, and wonderful lives. I've, I've recently had the good fortune of working with collegiate recovery programs, which, you know, gosh, 32 years ago would have been amazing to have. And however, um, they're here now. And, and it is certainly an exciting wave watching them grow and, and heal and go on to, you know, take, hopefully one day take my place. Um, I've, I've identified a young lady and I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to work with you because I want you to, to step into my shoes, uh, when, when it's time for me to turn the reins over. And, and she's an amazing young lady and, and very involved in collegiate recovery and has now graduated and is doing work um, to start recovery high schools. So it, it's just wonderful what we are able to do and what we end up doing uh, when we really embrace recovery as a lifestyle. So I have a question for you as it relates to how did you get Spirit Works foundation started what was the impetus behind that uh, at the time i was working as a community manager at a uh at a drug and alcohol treatment center for healthcare professionals and um and one too many re- relapsed i mean it's a it's something that i won't ever forget it, it's sadly been probably 15 years and and yet it's it's something that's still with me and um, so at the end of, of treatment for people who are, are leaving, we kind of did this, this ceremony where we presented them with their coins and they, their peers got to say wonderful things about them. And this particular gentleman who drove a red pickup truck, he was a dentist. And, you know, we said our goodbyes. He was on his way. And several hours later, his wife called cursing. Um, and it was because he had gotten a DUI and was now in jail. And, and that just really was horrible for me. And she talked about that, you know, we wasted his time and we, you know, we took their money and on and on and on. And, you know, from that experience, I decided that we needed a place in the community that could catch people as they were transitioning from from treatment um, we've we've certainly expanded our work to include those transitioning from jail also but it was because of this man who uh who left and and you know at that particular treatment center they always had to be in pairs so you know for 89 days of their lives um, their sober lives they were always in twos and so you know, the, the early kind of things that we said at SpiritWorks were, what are you going to do on day 90 when you get out of rehab? Or, or what are you going to do the other 23 hours of the day when you're not in, in a 12-step meeting or some other mutual support meeting? And so that's where we started. And we continue to, to really be supportive of those who are leaving treatment um, and now extended to those who are leaving jails or prisons. If somebody was interested in becoming involved in one of the SpiritWorks programs, how do they sign up? How do they find out more about you? The two primary ways. The, the first has always been word of mouth. Um, we have a, a, a recovery center in Williamsburg, Virginia. We have a recovery center in Warrington, Virginia. And we do a lot of resource brokering and connecting folks with 
you know, services and supports that are in their areas as well. Um, we have an amazing web designer who has has created a profile for us that's really elevated the work that we do. One of the areas in particular is is with education and information. Um, we've got, a, a, of course, our, our main SpiritWorks website, but then we have a, a website called Provisions for the Journey, and it is what's called curated. And so it points to all of the experts, uh, to NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, to Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, Faces and Voices of Recovery, and all of those kinds of places. So they don't have to kind of try to figure it out. How, how to find these different resources we've we've pointed to all of them and and it's been fun because it doesn't it means that I don't didn't have to create anything except for I just have to have knowledge of the the materials and the and the different things that are out there and then people can just you know from the comfort of their homes be able to to access that information and so being able to go to the provisions of the journey website certainly being able to go to the spirit works website or as you mentioned in in my introduction when you're introducing me being able to go to the institute for recovery and resilience um, is another way or taking a class um, is you know so more and more when when we're searched as well as out in the community People are getting to know not only me, but they're also getting to know SpiritWorks and the brands that that we've got associated with it. And I I think that it's amazing work that you're doing, uh, raising awareness and really in particular the work with children and helping remove the veil of shame and and letting them know they're not alone in this. And, And the more that we educate and make people aware that just trying to help them understand this is a disease this is a medical condition that that we can remove the shame my personal belief is shame is the biggest contributor to addiction across the board whether you're the one in it or you have a loved one that's in it so amazing things that you're doing and and i personally appreciate it and it's it's very touching to me Thank you. It's funny because the Surgeon General agrees wholeheartedly with your statement. He believes that he's he's gone on record to say that shame kills more people than fentanyl. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's so much truth to that. So I wanted to ask you on a personal level, and I think you're, a lot of your engagement, as you mentioned, and where you've taken your career and that focus of helping those in recovery, what else do you do? to maintain your recovery and sobriety? Sure. So for me um, and anybody who works with me or for me, recovery is first. And and so, you know, the work that we do every day is, is challenging and rewarding and wonderful um, all at the same time. And, and we're not going to be able to do it if, if we don't keep our recovery first. And so, you know, many of the things that I learned to do in treatment, I continue to do this many years later. You know, I, I learned how to get on my knees in the morning and, and ask God to help me and get on my knees at night and, and say thank you when God does. And so that is still very much um, the way I start and end my day. I, I attend various types of mutual support groups, so I really continue to stay active. You know, one of the things that I learned many, many years ago was that I needed to keep recovery green. And so 
I, I get to work with people who are new and be reminded that, you know, addiction is still, you know, and drugs are, are stronger and all of those things are still there. And so it, it really is about main, maintaining those things. I go to church. You know, I, I have my recovery is is, you know, holistic. I mean, I am able to focus on all of those different social determinants of health and wellness. And so I, I think that that, you know, getting good sleep, eating good food, I could use to exercise more. Um, I think we and, all can. And, <laughs> I, know, I, I struggle with that as well. <laughs> so just really having a well-rounded life and, and having a life that certainly my foundation is recovery, but I mean, doing things that are fun. I love to travel. I love to take pictures. Um, you know, I have two dogs that I'm, I'm absolutely crazy about, uh, spending time with my partner. And so just will, I mean, it's really hard to get sober and stay sober. Um, and so we, we need a reason to do this very, very difficult work. And, you know, in the beginning, it was about not live, not wanting to die. Then it was about wanting to keep what I had. And, and these days, it's about I have an amazing life and, and I want to keep it. And so it, it makes, you know, every day worthwhile to get up. And, and that's where that hope comes from. Um, we like to call ourselves hope dealers around here. And uh, it's, it's, it's just pretty cool. I'm going to steal that. I like that. I had not heard that. <laughs> we need to make a T-shirt of that. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's so great. So I would love to know if you could go back to your former self 32 years ago or somebody in your same shoes before you you were able to get into recovery and have it stick, what advice would you give to your former self or someone like that? I would tell them to that they're worth it, that there's people out there who will help them, who won't give up on them. And and just really let them know that, you know, we're here, you know, we're here. We will walk alongside you. We won't hand you off. We won't give you a meeting list um, that, that you don't ever have to be alone again. And I think that the isolation and um, the loneliness you know, that most of us feel um, in our active addiction is is what leads to despair and and the desperation and so you know gosh knowing that that i didn't have to do it by myself and and bigger than that that i i am never alone that there's always someone who who's going to be there with me i uh, just wanted to share i had a, a very wise therapist who once said while i was in treatment that addiction is a gift and it's wrapped in crappy paper and <laughs> People are who are in it, you know. You, for me, it was it was true hell. But if you can get past that, it will be a gift, and you will be a better person, and you'll you'll have things within you that that other people don't by overcoming this. And, and there is true happiness waiting, and you'll experience it beyond some who maybe haven't gone through what you've gone through. To me, it's it's hard to get past again that shame factor when you're in it but if you can just fight through it and get there you know eventually the happiness comes and and you learn how to live and appreciate it um one question i did want to ask you at what point did 
did you reach that wonderful life? Because I know, you know, there are stages even in recovery, early recovery, to where, you know, it's just a battle to fight through the post-acute withdrawals and to maintain that community. And and eventually, you know, you reach a point where this is, you do wake up in the morning and, and you feel it. This is going to be a great day. And you close the day saying, what a great day. Can you put a bit of a timeline on, about when that the clouds really completely cleared for you i think i think there was a period of it between maybe five to seven years for me where where i i lived in that place more than i lived in the other um however i i think really between 10 and 12 years it it kind of crystallized and so you know, they talk about kind of the phases and stages of first you need it and, and then you get to this place where you want it. And now it really is what I choose. And and even bigger than that, it's it's become the gift that you just talked about because I get up every morning and I say, what do I get to do today? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a get to, not a have to or need to or even a want to. It's it's what do I get to do today? And you know, and that's how I know that I've I've reached this place where, um, you know, life is just it really is a gift. I, I had not ever heard it described with the crappy wrapping paper, but I'm going to use that. <laughs> so my life is so rich and so full and and it's I mean, and it continues to get better. I mean, you know, the things that I'm getting to do these days are, are beyond anything I would have ever imagined possible. Thank you so much for sharing your advice and your story. Do you have any parting wisdom or anything else you'd like to add? To just say, I mean, to the recognition of, I think we touched upon it a little bit, that, that this is, it's a chronic illness and, and certainly recovery is, is possible and the expectation and that we've got to include family members, the community, and, and most assuredly, we've got to include the, the children and, and youth who are affected by this. Um, you know, we know where where the next generation is. Um, they're growing up in these households with addiction. And, um, you know, they're amazing and wonderful human beings. And um, for me, making the, the difference in the life of a child is, is the most important thing in the world. And um, it's what keeps me going every day. Jen, you're an amazing person, and I I thank you and all involved in this program that you run. This is just a wonderful organization, and and you're doing great work, and, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that we get to meet in person one day. I would love to just take you out to lunch and just and and just have some face to face time. So let's it make would it happen. be awesome. Let's make it happen. Okay. Deal. All right. So let's just remind people again, if they want to reach out and get to know more about Spirit Works Foundation, um, they can go to spiritworksfoundation.org. And Jen, can you uh, remind us of the other websites that you have? Sure. The other one is Provisions for the Journey, and it is very simply provisionsforthejourney.org or the Spirit Works Institute for Recovery and Resilience, which is our education arm, which is spiritworks.institute so any of those three and lots of good resources out there Uh, people can also call Uh, you have your number is 757 
903-0000. Correct. And you don't have to be in Virginia. Um, I mean, you know, give us a call and, and we will help you find resources in, in your specific area. That's great. All right. So here is our song for this episode. And the song we picked, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. Oh, nice. I think that just fits with Spirit Works Foundation and all the work that you're doing. And this is a fun song. Has a faith-based component, but yet... Everybody loves this song. They hear the Absolutely. the beginning it's got a good of it. Groove. It yeah, does. For sure, that hook is killer. And it's a fun song to harmonize to because there's that great kind of background singer part that the the call and response. I like it. <laughs> so that's our song, "Spirit in the Sky." Listen to it. 